you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to be this morning. There have been some great sermons in the history of the church. I've had the privilege, as I've gone about studying for my PhD and preaching, to encounter many of them, to read them, to hear them. I was thinking this week about some of the ones that I've been exposed to from the, the book of Acts, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And what a, a powerful declaration of the, the transforming work of the gospel to have someone who was so scared to tell a servant girl that he was connected to Jesus, to, to declaring before these, these people who put Jesus to death his commitment to Christ. I remember reading uh, the, the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards in high school. I mean, think about the pressure of, of not only preaching your sermon, but having recording of it given to generations as evidence of Puritan preaching. It was a... a, a challenging sermon, a sobering sermon, as it reminds us of what we deserve, and yet the grace of God to hold us back from what we deserve. Even more modern day examples, I remember several years ago hearing Dr. Fred Luter preach at uh, Sunday school week in Lifeway. He was preaching on the dry bones from Ezekiel. I remember being stirred up. I don't know if there was a dry bone in me, but if it was, his preaching, the power of the Spirit was calling me back to life. And even this past week, I was reminded of a sermon I heard 20 years ago from John Piper at the first one-day event that later became Passion. And the, the sermon he gave that day about boasting only in the Lord and giving our lives uh, to the, the message of the gospel. What a transforming moment that was in my life and thousands of college students' life as they heard John Piper preach. I, I can't imagine over the course of the history of the church, the number of incredible, great, awe-inspiring, uh, devotion-demanding sermons that have been preached to the people of God. But I want to say to you this morning, that in light, spite of all those great sermons, there has never been a greater sermon preached than the sermon that we're about to encounter today that begins in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. There's never been a greater sermon given than this sermon because nobody speaks about God and nobody speaks about his kingdom better than the incarnate word of God, King Jesus himself. And this sermon that we'll encounter from Matthew 5 through Matthew 7, we hear the Son of God, the King of this kingdom, talk about what it means to live in and be about the business of the kingdom of God. And it's truly something to behold. What a privilege to have these words recorded under the inspiring work of the Holy Spirit. It's eternity altering to hear the word of God deliver the word of God about the kingdom of God. And I hope that you're ready because we're... We're eyewitnesses, we're ear witnesses this morning under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the words of Christ, your Savior, my Savior. I can't think of a better thing to do on a Sunday morning than to, to listen to what he has spoken, amen? The Sermon on the Mount is one of five discourses, five extended periods of teaching in the book of Matthew. But this first one, the Sermon on the Mount, sets the stage for everything else that's going to happen in the ministry of Jesus and what he will teach 
We begin this morning by thinking about the kingdom of God and what those who will inhabit the kingdom of God will look like as we anticipate not only the beginning, the inaugurating of the kingdom and the work of Christ now, but the full realization of that kingdom when he returns. And Jesus begins this teaching about what those who will live in his kingdom must look like by offering something I hope very familiar to us if you've been in the church for any length of time. These are called the Beatitudes. They are wisdom sayings from Jesus, wisdom sayings about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. They are descriptions of what it, of what it means to be favored in the kingdom of God. A citizen of the kingdom of God will look like this. And so Jesus says, I hope that you are pursuing this because if you want to be in the kingdom, this is what you must look like. He says over and over again, blessed are, blessed are. And I hope that as you hear that word blessed, your ears are immediately perked because who in here doesn't want to be blessed? Anybody here want to be blessed? I, I want to be blessed. I want to know what it means to be blessed by God and where better to hear of what it means to be blessed by God than from God himself. He's going to define it for us. But as we encounter Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, I think you're going to be a little surprised. Because what Jesus teaches about the blessing of God is so different than we in our human understanding would offer. You know, in our earthly perspective, we have offered a definition of what it means to be blessed by God. It's wrong, but we do it often, right? I mean, think about how many things that we equate with the blessing of God. If you're blessed by God, according to our understanding, you're going to have health. You're going to have wealth. You're going to have power. You're going to have favor among your brothers and sisters, mankind. You're going to have a great family, and you're going to have uh, just children and children pouring out in your family. It's going to be an incredible blessing to see how your family grows. All these things we think are evidence of God's favor, evidence of God's approval, evidence of God's blessing. It reminds me of the story of Job. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament, also wisdom literature? There's this guy named Job, and he's got it all. If you, if, if you were like the guy who has it all, it would be Job. He had wealth, he had tons of livestock, which was the, the, the wealth of the day, tons of land. Uh, he had good health. He had tons of kids. Everybody looked at Job and said, man, that's the guy who's got favor with God. In fact, Satan said, God, Job, the only reason he's serving you is because of how much favor you've poured out upon him through all these material earthly blessings. I bet, this is what Satan says to God, the audacity, right? I bet if I take all that stuff away, he will no longer worship you because he won't think he's blessed anymore. He won't think he's favored anymore. He'll lose his faith in you. And so God says to Satan, test my servant Job. And one by one, the enemy, Satan, removes all of these so-called blessing from Job's life. And yet, Job never forsakes his God because he knows that blessing is rooted in something deeper. He knows that God's favor is rooted in something deeper. And even though it shook his faith, he did not lose his faith. His friends, his wife, saying to him, what did you do? What did you do to lose favor with God that you would lose all of these material blessings? And the whole time, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament is saying, that's not the question. The question is, what does it actually mean to be blessed by God? 
And if you have him, is he enough? If he's all that you have, is he enough? And it seems like the teaching of Jesus is bringing us right back to that truth. The kingdom of heaven does not function according to our expectations. God has a different agenda. It's not an earthly agenda. It's an eternal agenda that is more concerned about God's glory than our accumulation of earthly wealth. The work of the kingdom is a heavenly work, not just an earthly one. It's an eternal one that consumes our now in surprising ways. It gives meaning to our now, such that if we lose everything now, we realize we've gained everything because what awaits us when Christ comes to take us home. So let's begin this morning by looking at the surprising teaching of Jesus about his kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount by looking at these Beatitudes. And as we read them, remember, the point of them is for Jesus to introduce to us what citizens of this kingdom must look like. If you want to be a part of this surprising kingdom, if you want to be about a part of this eternal work that God is doing through his kingdom, this is what you have to look like. This is what will be true of those who live in this kingdom. So let's consider that together. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Here's what the word of God says. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This passage begins, the sermon begins, with a designation that we saw last week. That's very important throughout the course of the Gospel of Matthew. Crowds have gathered. They've gathered from the nations around Jesus because of his displays of power that we saw at the end of chapter 4. He's healing people. He's casting out demons and Anytime there's a show like that, people are going to be drawn, right? They're coming to see who this Jesus is and what he is about. But apart from the crowds, there's another group of people that Jesus calls to himself. Disciples. Who are not just there for the display of power. They want to know the source of power. They want to know how Christ has this kind of authority. And how he is being uniquely used by God. They're drawn to the power and the source of the power. And as they sit around Jesus, the teaching he offers is counterintuitive to the very thing that brought them to him. They're they're desiring power, and yet everything he teaches is contrary to our idea of power. In fact, it encourages the exact opposite. Not displays of human power, earthly power, but 
displays of human weakness. He's turning the world upside down. And our expectations about what it means to be a follower of Christ, this king and his kingdom, as the approved of God, he lets us know what it actually means to be approved by God, to be a part of his kingdom. Essentially, here's what he says. You're going to encapsulate the Beatitudes in a statement. You could encapsulate it this way. Approval comes, blessing comes when we love God and we love others. Citizens of the kingdom of God will love God and they will love others. Now, this is a kind of designation, a foundation that we see throughout the scripture, right? This the same kind of designation can describe the Ten Commandments. There's a section of the Ten Commandments that's about loving God. And there's a section of the Ten Commandments that is about loving people in response to how you love God. Even Jesus himself expands upon this teaching in Matthew chapter 22. When he talks about the greatest commandment, do you remember this? The Pharisees come to him, one of them, a lawyer, asks Christ a, test, a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Of all the things God's asked of us, what is the greatest commandment? And he says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And then the second is like it. It's a a natural consequence of the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. On these two commandments depend the whole kingdom of God. And we see that fleshed out here in chapter 5. Citizens of the kingdom will love God. Citizens of the kingdom, as a consequence of their love for God, will love others. And let's see how this fleshes out in Matthew chapter 5. What does it look like to love God and the kingdom of God? What needs to be characteristic of a citizen of God, a citizen of the kingdom who loves God? Well, therefore, under this initial declaration that blessed are those who love the Lord. Four characteristics of those who love the Lord that are approved by God and receive his blessing. Firstly, Approval, blessing comes to those who are poor in spirit. Those who love God will be poor in spirit, verse 3. Typically, we don't think about poverty as being a blessing, right? Who, who thinks that being poor is a display of God's blessing upon your life? Typically, again, we think that wealth is. And yet, something about poverty here is very important in the kingdom of God. But not earthly poverty, spiritual poverty. Jesus is saying that Those who love God realize they have nothing to offer God to enter into this kingdom. You have nothing to offer. You have no spiritual wealth. You have no deserving qualities that you can present before God to say, Hey, I am worth, I am worthy of entering into your kingdom. No, no, no. You are spiritually poor beyond your wildest imaginations. You are destitute. You are in need. You cannot be righteous enough on your own. You cannot accumulate enough wealth of righteousness to stand before a holy and righteous God. You cannot meet the standard that God has set. You are spiritually poor. Now, I want you to think about how crazy this teaching is to the people who are listening to Jesus. The very people who are idolizing the Pharisees. You remember the Pharisees, right? 
They are committed to obeying the law. So much so, in fact, they've added additional laws to make sure that they are abiding by the laws. And people are, are crazed by them. They're so, they're, they're, they're so enamored with them. How holy are they? The kind of lives that they're living. Jesus says, I don't care how, how great the Pharisees are. The best Pharisee is spiritually poor, poor before the Lord. And you're blessed when you realize that. Your favor, that's a, that's a, that's a God-given gift for you to realize you have nothing to offer him for entrance into this kingdom. And it will generate love for him when you realize what he has given you to be able to enter into it. Nothing you've earned, but what he's earned and freely given. When you realize your spiritual poverty, then entering the kingdom actually becomes a possibility because humility replaces pride and dependence replaces self-sufficiency, things that are necessary to prepare your heart for Jesus, who alone can give you entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Those who are worthy of the kingdom realize they're not worthy of the kingdom. That the only way they can get into the kingdom is through the work of God in Christ. That generates a love for him. Because he didn't owe us that. And yet he has given us that. Those who love the Lord mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, verse 4. Now this seems odd again. How many of you in here are longing for the day when you can mourn again? Right? I mean, typically mourn comes with a, mourning comes because of a great loss. And nobody in here wants to be mournful all the time. And yet Jesus says that they are blessed who mourn. What is he talking about here? Well, remember, it's in relation to the kingdom. People who mourn, about the need for the kingdom. People who mourn about the need for the work of Christ. Blessed are those who recognize why things are the way they are. Sin, death, destruction. Blessed are those who recognize the wake of sin and their own role in bringing about the destruction of sin. Who grieve over sin and their life, and the world, and why the work of Christ is necessary. Those who love the Lord will mourn over their life and the world that does not honor the Lord. I wonder if that's true of us. Do you grieve over the despair of this world? Do you grieve over the lostness of this world? Do you grieve over your own sin and, and your role in bringing about the brokenness in this world? I was, I was watching the news yesterday about the, the death of, of Justice Ginsburg and uh, just the, the crazed reaction on both sides of the political spectrum about the importance of this one Supreme Court nominee. And when it happens and who gets to, to nominate them. It's as if the entirety of human culture, human civilization, is dependent upon this one position on the United States Supreme Court. And I'm not saying it's not important. 
But I am saying I was broken over the importance that was placed upon it. I want you to hear me this morning, friends. It didn't matter who's on the Supreme Court. It didn't matter really ultimately who's in the presidency. None of them can fix what ultimately ails this world. And if you put too much of your hope in a political ideology, you will be grieved in the wrong way because you will never be satisfied. Your mourning will never be comforted because you have not recognized the true place of mourning. There's no political savior. There's no governmental savior. There's no earthly savior. The kingdom comes when you recognize the real reason that this world is broken. And the comfort comes when you realize who can actually resolve it. There's comfort in God's kingdom. Eternal saving comfort that can withstand any, any issue that we face on this planet. Approval comes to the meek. Those who love the Lord will be meek, according to verse 5. The meek will inherit the earth. Again, Jesus, what are you talking about? No meek person has ever conquered anything. When we think about the history of the world, who is it that takes over the earth? Who are the greatest warriors, the greatest conquerors, those who are violent, those who have the ability to assert their will and gather people around their will, those, those are who, who, who thrive in the survival of the fittest. If you want something in this world, you got to go get it, right? you got to go take it. That's not meekness. How can you inherit the world? How can you take over the kingdom of the world if you're meek? But in God's kingdom, those who are blessed are those who do not rely upon their own strength to win the battle, but God's. In His timing and in His way, God's kingdom demands gentleness and self-control of its citizens. Because citizens of his world or his kingdom will have confidence in his word and his will more than their own. And they will trust him to be about his glory rather than our glory. Those who love the Lord trust the Lord. The battle belongs to him, right? It's his work to build this kingdom. We're just a part of it. Blessed are the meek. And then the final portion of this first declaration of Jesus, that blessed are those who love the Lord, those who love the Lord hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, verse 6, because they will be satisfied. The reality is all of us hunger and thirst. All right? Some of you right now are feeling your hunger, even though it's only 11.47 a.m. Should have gotten a snack, okay? Some of you are feeling thirsty. I cannot wait for Jerry to get finished. I gotta get a drink of water. You have a physical thirst. You know you also have the spiritual thirst. God created us this way. There's a deep longing in your soul. And every one of us in this room has tried to satisfy that longing in a way that does not honor the Lord by relationships, again, power, success, all these things that we consider to be earthly successes. They're idols that we've tried to put in place of God in order to fill this void. 
Jesus is saying those who are worthy of his kingdom recognize the right thing to hunger and thirst for. Righteousness. Because the, the more you pursue righteousness, the more you get of God. Who is the ultimate satisfaction for everything that you long for. Citizens of the kingdom recognize it's futile to love anything else greater than God. Because only God can satisfy. He's, he's created you to be satisfied in him. And he's what you ultimately long for. Many of you in here know that uh, I'm a, a connoisseur of Mexican food. I like, especially Tex-Mex, right? I, I love Tex-Mex. Anybody in here uh, agree with that? I mean, anybody else in here love Tex-Mex? And we've got, you know, great options in Dallas, Fort Worth area for Tex-Mex. We've got Lupe Tortillas finally here. You know, how, you know my feelings about Lupe Tortilla. And then even recently, uh, I've come to grow affectionately for Uncle Julio's. So really great option. In fact, some days I think that Uncle Julio's is better than Lupe Tortilla. That may be sacrilegious to say, but I'm going to say it. Papasitas up the road, also good, kind of expensive, but a lot of great options. And you know, when I, let's say I'm going to Uncle Julio's, there's this like chicken dish that they make that is just unbelievable. It's on a skillet, it's grilled, it's got peppers around it, it comes out burning hot, and it just tastes unbelievable. It's got peppers around it, you get the tortillas with it, right? Everything's looking really good. But here's the mistake most of us make when we go to the Mexican restaurant. We have this issue between us seating or being seated and eating our meal is chips and salsa. Because they come and they give you free chips and salsa. And, and, and while you're talking, you're not even realizing how much of it you're eating. You're just getting the chip and you're dipping the dip and you're eating it and you're eating it and you're eating it. And depending on how busy they are and how long it is, it's possible that by the time your actual order gets there, you're not even full anymore. You order a chimichanga. Who doesn't love a chimichanga? By the time the chimichanga gets to your table, you don't even want the chimichanga anymore because you've been eating chips and salsa. Now, listen. If any of us are being honest in this room, is a chimichanga worth the same as chips and salsa? No. In fact, the whole point of chips and salsa is to get you ready for the chimichanga. But occasionally, we will eat so much chips and salsa that the preparation has actually become the fulfillment. And we won't eat what we went there for in the first place. Now, I'm about to make a big, giant spiritual leap. Okay? And the course of life, God has gifted us some tremendous appetizers to get us ready for him. The frailty of sin is that we try to satisfy ourselves on everything that was meant to get us to God instead of getting to God himself. I want you to hear me this morning. There's nothing that can satisfy you like God can satisfy you. I don't care what you find in this world. It was not made to satisfy you. It was made to point you to the thing that ultimately satisfies you. You want love? Great. I'm going to give you friendship. But to point you to a greater friend that will never let you down. I'm going to give you marriage. Talk about a greater union and greater intimacy that can only be found in God. I'm going to give you children to help you remember that you are a child of the living God. 
everything that God has given us that we try to find ultimacy in was ultimately meant to lead to him. Don't you be sitting down at the table at God's banquet and eating chips and salsa and miss the great chimichanga that's coming your way. Don't thirst, don't hunger for the wrong things, friend, because you will never be satisfied. Chips and salsa, it's not going to last. That chimichanga, eternity. I don't think that's sacrilegious to say, right? I'm equating God with it, but you know what I'm saying. You see the, 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 the movement there, okay? Be satisfied by the right thing. Hunger and thirst for the right thing. Do not be satisfied by anything less. And if you're in the kingdom of God, you'll know that. Those who are citizens of the kingdom love God and are pursuing righteousness because the more that we pursue righteousness, the more of God we get. And there's no greater blessing, no greater fulfillment than that. Blessed are those who love the Lord. Those in the kingdom will love the Lord. And they will love others. It's the second half of the Beatitudes. Loving others, loving God, trusting in God, seeing what God has done will lead us. How God has treated us will lead us to relate to others differently. Blessed are those who love others. The supernatural love that God gives to us for himself will necessarily lead to a love for others. As we are about the business of the kingdom, we will see God's heart for others and desire that same heart. How we love others helps us know that we are really a part of his kingdom. I want to say this, kindness toward others, displaying the fruit of the Spirit toward others, may in fact be the greatest evidence, the greatest evidence of someone who is truly a part of the kingdom. It's going to show up in your life, friends. To have that kind of love shown to you and to say that I love God in that kind of way, it's going to have to show up in your life somewhere. So let's see these markers, these external markers of how we relate to others that are evidencing the fact that we are a part of the kingdom of God. Those who love others in light of their love for God, they show mercy, verse 7. Blessed are those, are proved for the kingdom are those who show mercy. Those who have received mercy will show mercy and in turn continue to receive mercy, compassion, pardon, forgiveness, not getting what you deserve and not giving to others what you think they deserve. Those in Christ's kingdom will be quick to forgive and quick to release offense because they know the mercy that God has shown to them. I want you to hear me this morning. There is nothing you can do, and there is nothing that can be done to you that is greater than we have done to God. And yet, He has shown us the most incredible mercy. And if you have received that kind of mercy, you have to show it to others. Jesus expands upon this teaching later in Matthew as well, in Matthew chapter 18. There's a parable there, beginning in verse 21, about the unforgiving servant. Do you remember this parable from Jesus? We'll get to it again as we move through Matthew. And Peter comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I must forgive him? How often? 
Do I actually have to forgive this guy who keeps offending me seven times? And Jesus said, I don't say seven, but 77. So much more than you think because of what you have received. And he tells a parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle the accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle one, he was... A uh, woman was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, in my Bible, the footnote says that a talent is a monetary unit worth about 20 years wages, uh, 20 years labor. So think about that. 10,000 talents, multiple life sentences here. There's no way he could ever repay what he owes. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. Even though there was no way he could pay it. I'm going I'm to find a way. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. You don't have to pay me back. I'm releasing you. But when the same servant went out, the one who had just been forgiven more than he ever could have repaid, he found one of his fellow servants who owned him, owed him a hundred Denarii. And again, my footnote says that's a day's wages for a laborer, one denarii. So a much smaller amount that he's owed. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and he pleaded with him in the same way. Have patience with me, I can pay you. But he refused and he went and put him in prison until he could pay his debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master what had taken place. This master summoned the servant and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you and all the debt that you had because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he could pay his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Those in the kingdom have been forgiven greatly. Those in the kingdom have received much mercy. And if you've received that kind of mercy, you're going to show it to others. The question is, if you don't show mercy, have you actually experienced mercy? In the kingdom, you're going to be merciful. Approval comes to those who are pure in hearts, verse 8. Those who will be able, because they will be able to see God. Blessed are those who run from their sin toward the things of God and are single-mindedly committed to the work of God because they will see God. They will experience Him because they are looking for Him and His work. They will be able to walk in the Spirit who will show them and they will see Him forever as they enter into His rest. Blessed are those whose whole life is dedicated to loving God and loving others. Approval comes, verse 9, to those who are peacemakers, because they will be called sons of God. Is there any greater work that we as the people of God could be about than making peace? Setting things right. There's, there's no greater work that a son of God can do then work to set things right that have been overcome and destroyed by sin through the power of the gospel. That's what peace means, setting things right. It, it means that we recognize 
what the cause of all the division, what the cause of all the brokenness in this world is. And it means that we know where true peace is found in the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. This is not about peacekeeping, trying to moderate sides. No, this, is a, this is a deeper thing. It's a deeper work. But we recognize the root of our division, the root of what separates us. And we deal with it with the only thing that can overcome it, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did you know that until Christ comes again, there will be conflict among men? Yep. There's going to be conflict in your marriage. Anybody surprised by that? There's going to be conflict in your household. If you live with roommates, somebody's going to be mad because you didn't clean the dishes. There's going to be conflict in our country. There's going to be conflict in our world. There's even going to be conflict in the church. You know? Because the church is made up of imperfect people. Anybody in here imperfect? We've got sinners in the room? Yeah, and we will be until Christ comes Back. So long as there is sin, there will be conflict. Peace does not mean the absence of sin on this side of Jesus necessarily. What it means is the presence of gospel-generated resolution to sinful conflict. It means allowing the gospel and the prince of peace to set right what is wrong until the day when he will perfectly usher in peace for all eternity. It's recognizing our sin and that why is there conflict amongst us, as James writes? Is it not because your own passions war within you? That it's our own sinfulness that generates conflict. And the only resolution for that is the gospel. And so we make peace as we allow the gospel to do its work in overcoming sinfulness. And finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who love others so much that they are willing to endure the attack of those outside of Christ. Verbal attacks, physical attacks, for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. Is there any greater display of faithfulness to Jesus than being persecuted for the kingdom of heaven? Is there any moment where we will identify with Jesus more than pursuing righteousness and pursuing the kingdom of God and being persecuted for it because those who are outside of Christ do not like what they are seeing, what they are being challenged in and convicted by, and yet we continue because we love them enough and know that they need to hear what we are saying and they need to see what we are doing. I think about the example of Christ himself in Luke 23, 34, as he sits upon the cross, beaten, mocked, crucified, experiencing the greatest injustice ever known to man, and yet he looks upon his accusers and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Citizens of the kingdom love others enough to endure persecution and remember that there is a greater reward than just comfort in this life. Eternal comfort that awaits us in a new heaven and a new earth. Listen, a life of righteousness is offensive. 
when you choose not to do what the world does and treat people the way the world does and approach your job the way the world does, you will necessarily bring conviction upon those who choose a different path. And they may speak about you. And they may fire you. And in some places in the world, they may arrest you. And they may kill you. But is the kingdom worth it? Is, is your reward that is coming greater than what it could cost you here? And do you love the people around you enough? Are you concerned about their eternal security enough to endure for the glory of God? Friends, what a picture of the kingdom we have here in Matthew chapter 5. What a challenge, right? I mean, I'm, these are weighty expectations. And I hope that what we've read here is both inspiring and troubling. On the one hand, you're thinking, yeah, I want to love God that way. Yeah, I want to love others that way. On the, the other hand, you're thinking, there's no way I can love God that way. And there's no way I can love others that way on my own. How can, how can we achieve this standard? How can we perfect, be perfect as God is perfect, as Jesus challenges us to do later in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48? I've got good news for you on this side of the coming of Jesus. We can only do the work of this kingdom because Jesus finished his work to inaugurate the kingdom. You see, Jesus, as we'll see in the book of Matthew, loved God perfectly. And Jesus loved others perfectly. And now we can step into his work. We can step into his provision. We won't be perfect, but we can move toward Christ's likeness with the Spirit of God that is within us. He allows us to strive for this ideal and to become better as we strive for this ideal, more worthy citizens of the kingdom because of Christ who has called us to himself, awaiting the day when the kingdom will be fully established and we can step into that kingdom perfect glorified as God's work upon us is finished and we are prepared for eternity. The Spirit allows us to begin that work now and to strive for that ideal now even as we know that we won't perfectly fit in the kingdom until Christ returns. But there will be evidence. There will be evidence of a transition in your life, even now. There will be evidence that you are being made, being readied for that kingdom that is now and coming. So here's the question. Are you fit for the kingdom of God? Do you love the Lord in this way? Do you see your spiritual poverty? And are you challenged by your own self-righteousness? Are you grateful that God has given you what you never could have attained on your own? Are you mourning over your sin in the wake of sin? Are you mourning over what it's cost, the relationship it's cost between us and God, and the need for the work of Christ to begin with? Are you relying upon your own power or God's power? Are you meek or are you a bully? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness 
a life that pleases God? And do you love others? Are you showing mercy? Are you living a life that shows purity of heart, a testimony to others of the greatness of God? Are you persecuted because of how you are living your life? Are you a peacemaker or a divider? Are you so committed to righteousness and loving others that you're willing to endure the attack of the enemy through people? Are you fit for the kingdom? The only way you can answer yes to that is if you were in Christ, who can make you fit for the kingdom. You cannot do it on your own, but in him, you have access. Have you given the life to Jesus? Let me also ask us a, a question collectively as the church. Do we look like this? Do we, as the people of First Baptist Church of Irving, look like the kingdom of God, citizens of the kingdom that are being outlined here in the Beatitudes. Jonathan Lehman says that the church is a kingdom outpost. Isn't that cool? There's no greater display of the kingdom of God than the gathered people of God. That's what it should be. That when people come, if they're not in this church, if they're not believers, when they come and they see the people of God together, they should be getting a taste, a foretaste, a picture of what the kingdom of God will look like. Is that true of us here at First Baptist Church of Irving? Do we see our spiritual poverty? Are we collectively mourning? Over the wake of sin, are we lamenting the presence of sin and the hopelessness that we see around us? Are we relying upon the power of God to do what only God can? We're not going to take Irving by the wisdom of man and the, the efforts of man. We've got to rely upon the power of God to do what only God can do. Are we hungering and thirsting for righteousness more than we're hunger, hungering and thirsting for the things of this world? Are we loving each other in a way that shows our love for God? Are we showing mercy to one another? Because we recognize our own brokenness and how much God has shown us. Are we living lives as a people that show purity of heart, are we peacemakers? When, divi when division comes up, as inevitably will, there's not a perfect church on the face of the earth. Do we recognize what the cause of that division in is and where true peace is found in the gospel that unites us? And are we willing to be persecuted because of our commitment to declaring the gospel and loving God and others? May we as a church commit to seeking God's approval more than man's. May we remember where true blessing is found, knowing that his kingdom is greater than ours. Let us rejoice if we are in it because of the work of Christ. And may we strive to be worthy of it in him. Until the day he comes back to make it a full reality. Wherever you are, would you bow your heads? Spend some time before the Lord, asking him to help you know how to respond. This challenging passage of scripture. Are you in the kingdom?
because you've given your life to the king? Have you recognized your spiritual poverty, your hopelessness, the cause of your grief, division, darkness? And have you trusted alone in Jesus? Have you trusted God to bring about the salvation that only he can bring? If you haven't, let today be the day when you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead to be saved. Step into his kingdom by giving your life to the king. For the rest of us, do we look like citizens of this kingdom? Not perfect, but growing in Christ's likeness. Are you loving God with your whole heart? And are you loving others? Being merciful, making peace, having purity of heart, and being willing to withstand persecution for the sake of Christ. May it be true of us individually. May it be true of us corporately. Father, would you find us faithful? And Spirit, would you reveal any place in our heart, any place in our lives that is unfit for the kingdom? And would you, in the power of the Spirit, help us to be more like Christ, our King, to be more worthy of the kingdom you are building and will one day bring to completion. Help us, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and respond in singing.